Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. I'm pretty excited about this topic because I think it's an important topic and something that probably a lot of people struggle with. Um, The topic today that we're going to talk about is the industry attitude towards new training methods and kind of how to navigate that as someone who's wanting to, like, adapt and learn more while being in an industry where people are very um, resistant to that type of adaptation. So... I think that's a really good topic because I think that it is hard to kind of adapt and modernize your methods, especially if you're around a lot of people who take an old school approach and don't want to change. They can make you question whether or not you're on the right track and whether or not you're doing the right thing. And it can be really hard to hold your ground um, as an amateur or junior rider or just someone who is less experienced than those who are kind of setting the status quo. So I wanted to talk about that and kind of like the process of my learning and just some things that I've noticed because I find it very, this is going to sound so creepy, but I find it really interesting to like watch people um, and think about like their underlying motivations behind things and what makes people tick and kind of be the way that they are. And I can now draw parallels from like my own journey in learning the stuff that I have and things that I've learned and like how I've adapted my horsemanship and kind of like I can't for sure speak for what other people are thinking, but I can, I think I had the general gist uh, of their motivation. So I want to talk about that and give people some insight on some things and hopefully help people with the adjustment process to learning and growing as an equestrian and kind of swaying from the common path because the industry is so resistant to change and generally quite far behind. But before we get into that, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has purchased from my new retro collection. It has been a huge hit. I'm really, really excited with how much attention that's gotten. We're selling out of a lot of sizes and we're running really low on the most popular sizes. So if anyone's interested in checking that out, I highly recommend heading to my website milestoneequestrian.ca soon and going to the shop milestone page to get your order in because we may not be getting a restock before Christmas. So if you'll want to get some of these products, I recommend getting in there soon and I really hope you check you check them out and that you like them because I'm pretty excited about this product line and I've put a lot of work into it, getting these patterns released, and I want to keep restocking it, but we have to move more product first because I am just but a one wee person. Um, So yeah, that's out. And then also, as always, you can subscribe to my Patreon channel for behind the scenes, early access to videos, training tutorials, training help, asking training questions, all sorts of things. You can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash sdeq. U-U-S, S-D Equus. And that's a really good way to support the channel um, and just like my general work because, for example, right now, my job is such that when you're trying to do things ethically, you can't work sometimes. So you might go a couple weeks without work. Like, for example, today and yesterday and the day before that, we've had smoke blow in and really poor air quality. So it's recommended not to exercise and it's not good for the horses. And since a lot of the horses that I've been working with are coming back into fitness and kind of developing that cardio and whatnot, it's even worse to work those types of horses in this. So I've had to cancel work that I technically need to do in order to make a living for the greater good of the horses. And that's kind of the nature of being a horse trainer too, is like you can lose work if you feel that a horse feels off and that they might need time off. And if you're honest with that, and I think that we'll, we'll kind of go into that more because I do think that does play a role with some of the decisions that a lot of professionals make, um, is the need to continue getting an income. So that's kind of why I have these multiple revenue streams now, because otherwise right now I would be pretty screwed because I just can't work because of the smoke. Um, and currently there's not really any end in sight unless the forthcoming rain kind of helps with that. So hopefully that'll happen because October is super unusual to have these types of fires. Um, I'm not anywhere near the wildfires, so you guys don't have to worry about me. We're not like an evacuation risk. Our air quality just sucks because we're getting smoke blown up here from Washington and Oregon, as well as from like the Alberta wildfires and the interior slash northern BC wildfires. So we're kind of sandwiched all in the middle of it and it took this long for all the smoke to get to us, but now it's here and it sucks. Like I have a headache um, from being outside for a short period of time today and moving pallets and stuff around because 
Unfortunately for me, I know it's not good for me, but I need to get stuff done. And when I'm not working, I'm kind of like, I might as well do everything that I'm usually too tired to do right now um, and sacrifice my health for the greater good of the horses. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what Patreon is a good help for. And then also like the products line and moving products like that, because it allows me to have an income when I otherwise wouldn't. And it would be like a big problem also. Uh, I've also been doing extensive vlogging on the Mustangs on my YouTube channel. You can look me up on YouTube, Shelby Dennis, and check out all those vlogs. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and turn on post notifications. This is like the first time ever since I got hacked like three years ago that my my channel has been coming back to life. So thank you everyone who helps with that because holy cow, I've been trying so hard to make this happen for so long. Anyways, Let's get into the whole resistance to change in the horse industry and some of my thoughts on that. So I already mentioned part of that in saying that as a trainer, if you are being paid to ride, that puts a lot of pressure on regularly being able to get on horses to ride in the first place. And this is something to keep in mind when you're considering your trainer's word on things pertaining to your horse. And this is not to say that all trainers are dishonest or that all of them are going to do this. It's just a reality of what this job is and something to consider. So, for example, if you need money and the horse is like showing behavioral problems that might be consistent with pain, but you don't think that it's getting escalated to such a degree where it needs to be immediately dealt with and you want to continue getting paid, some people will choose to ride through those types of things. Or if you try to get the owner to address the vet care, um, but the horse isn't obviously lame and they won't do it. Again, it's something that you could try to look at as like the lesser of two evils. I'm going to keep exercising this horse and try to do it within his current ability because the owner won't won't get the necessary vet check. And if I leave, they're just going to hire someone else who will do it anyways. Um, and I think that's a struggle that a lot of trainers run into. And it's definitely something that I ran into, especially in the beginning of starting out, because I was a lot less comfortable to kind of really hold my ground and potentially have to argue with people who were older than me and had technically been in the industry longer when they insisted that I was wrong about my assessment of their horse. And I also needed the money, especially when you're starting out and you haven't built that clientele and like that reputation that helps you continue getting new clients and getting paid for everything that you need to get paid for. So that pressure can lead trainers to continuing training when it may not technically be in the best interest for the horse, but they don't really see a way out. And this isn't a defense against riding like clearly lame horses or horses that need time off to heal. Um, but it's just something to understand that like when people are having to make a living, it's a sacrifice that they might have to make. Otherwise, they aren't eating and they might not make rent. So... I'm, I try not to judge people over this because I was in this very same position once and now I'm in a little bit more of a unique position where I've finally developed the type of clientele and like following that I need, um, where people are more likely to listen to my opinion on things and take my word for it. And I've developed clients by, through trial and error because the ones that don't like the way I do things will just leave. But I've developed clients that take what I say seriously and if I say that the horse should see a vet, they get the vet out. But it's been a long time to get to that point. And initially, I had to work in situations where I quite literally, like, I didn't realize it at the time, but, like, the work was sucking the life out of me because I was so miserable. And the horses weren't happy because they had poor management and I couldn't immediately address or change the management issues. And I wasn't being taken very seriously. And it was one of the worst working situations I have been in. Like, I really didn't want to go. It was absolute hell. The person was also underpaying me and really trying to take me for a ride uh, because they'd known me since I was very young and had even taught me lessons as a youngster. So I think they were still looking at me like I was a five-year-old child. Um, but they clearly could recognize that I could do a good enough job. They were willing to put me on their horses but the problem was that these horses were living like almost 24 hours a day in little stalls. And when they did get to go out in paddocks, they were tiny paddocks or they were just going out on a hot walker. So all these horses had pretty significant behavioral problems that were dangerous for me to work through and were indicators of their excess energy. So I didn't really want to get mad at them for it, but I was very limited in what I could actually do for them. 
and not riding them just meant that they were sitting in their stalls for longer. So a lot of it meant that I was having to ride horses through high levels of stress that wouldn't be there if they were actually allowed to self-exercise. And it was a very frustrating and demoralizing situation to be in, especially when you're not being appropriately listened to. And there was even circumstances at that job where I got thrown really, really badly from a horse that they were insistent was broke and that he was really good and he'd never done that before. It was a three-year-old Arab and he wasn't coping well with being stalled, clearly. And I did groundwork for a few days before that and then I took him into the arena to try getting on him and, like, he took one step after I got on and then bronked so hard that, like, I literally left a crater in the ground and then he proceeded to bronk all the way around the arena until he literally got the saddle off over his head with the girth still attached. Uh, That's how excessive it was. It was such a severe reaction and like I thought I broke my back. Like I've never had a fall where I was in that much pain when I like landed. I had to take a knee and like anyone who's seen my fall videos or has seen me fall off in person can attest to the fact that usually I get up right away and I'm immediately trying to go and catch the horse or do something. Like I don't stay down but this time was different and it just wasn't an ideal situation and it was a situation where I was having to work a job that I wasn't happy in and that I wasn't comfortable in and that I didn't agree with how the horses were being handled because I was starting out as a trainer and I didn't want to step on anyone's toes and get like blacklisted and I was also worried about not having enough clients and not making enough money because as soon as you decide to be like self-employed and freelancing and doing your own thing you're bringing in all the revenue and you don't necessarily have a backup plan. And this was at the point where I had quit my other job that I did before training horses. And I felt very, very trapped. And honestly, for like the first two years of me doing professional training services, there was a lot of situations where I felt very, very trapped because I felt pressured by my clients because they knew that I was young and that I was starting out. And I think they took that as more of a reason to try to leverage me into doing things that I wasn't comfortable with. So if I wanted to move slower for a horse, for example, if the owner didn't agree with me on that, they would try to pressure me into doing things faster. And back then, I was more likely to do it because I was so worried about losing the work that I needed. And I think that this is something that a lot of trainers and like up-and-coming riders who want to train can speak for because it's something that even working students get put in these positions. Even if they're not actively training all of these horses, they'll get put into positions where they might only be handling them on the ground, but they're being made to deal with horses who are dangerous and putting them in dangerous situations while seeing virtually no compensation for it and also not actually having the issues causing the dangerous behavior be properly addressed so that things can be safer for everyone later. And I think this is one of the reasons why people are so resistant to change is that you can feel very trapped in the horse world even if you know that something might be a better way or even if you're curious You can feel trapped and suffocated by the people who are paying your bills and paying you for your services, and it can be very scary to try to go and do things a different way when you're not sure that it's going to pay off. And I think that a lot of people get stuck in that, and that's also why so many trainers are so resistant to modernizing their training methods and considering new things. And this internal conflict sometimes comes out in, like, blatant denial of things. Like, you could produce so many studies to show to these people that, like, horses being stalled excessively increases flight behavior and makes them more difficult to handle, and they'll deny it because if they don't see an immediate out or a practical way of changing their client's living situation or their own horse's living situation, it's easier to deny the facts than it is to admit that you can't immediately provide for your horse what you would be the best case scenario or what you would like to. And I think that's what a lot of people do is that it is so overwhelming to consider having to relearn how to do so many things or consider how far astray so many of us have been led or how much misinformation we've been fed or even just the sole fact of knowing that if you choose to kind of go the science-based route, you're going to be a target where people will single you out and try to ridicule you and it's inherently less comfortable because there's less people that are applying positive reinforcement and clicker training and abiding by modern science. So it puts a target on your back because the information you share makes people uncomfortable, which makes them more likely to lash out on you. 
And it can be really hard to hold your ground against these people, especially when you're like newer to the industry or up and coming or they're paying your bills. It makes it so that the other side has a lot of leverage to try to make you be silent or do things a certain way or kind of go against your morals. Um, So the reason why I wanted to talk about that is just to kind of give people the other side of things to maybe give trainers a little bit more compassion at times because even people who are doing the more science-based things, it can be like it's a, it's a difficult path to walk when you're trying to look out for the best interests of animals that you do not pay the bills for and that you do not own because you're very limited in your advocacy and sometimes it's not always going to go how you want. So you have to play, you have to play the long game. Like I've had a lot of clients who starting out didn't want to do as many new things with their horses as I would have probably recommended, but I gradually, I get in there, I plant the seed, and I nurture it and grow it until they're more willing to take the next step to try something new. Like, for example, if I have a client whose horses are shod and they're not shod well and I'm seeing clear dysfunction in their hooves, I'm probably not going to bring that up my first several sessions with the horse. I'm going to start working with the horse and show behavioral change to the trainer and kind of develop, or not a, not the trainer, the owner, and kind of develop a relationship with the horse and the owner and get them comfortable around me, trusting what I say and seeing that I can actually do what I claim I can. And then I'll start talking about things like the, that and I'll do it in a really non-confrontational way, like sending them some resources on horses or if they ask me about my horses and how they're cared for, I'll talk to them about how my horses are barefoot, tell them Milo's story, and kind of go from there. But I can't just go in to these new situations like balls to the wall and be like, oh, your horse's feet suck, put their, take their shoes off right away because I'm not going to get listened to and I'm likely to get shut down and have them just find someone else if I make them feel uncomfortable and like they're, like they're being cornered basically right from the beginning. So Considering the fact that like a lot of trainers are in a situation where they are having to please clients in order to pay their rent, it makes it a little bit difficult and it means that there's going to have to be some compromise no matter what type of trainer you are. And other like clicker trainers and trainers who use positive reinforcement can tell their own stories of this, but I would imagine even in that situation, you have to do what is within your power of doing with the clients that you have. And there's always a line that you can draw where if someone's asking you to cross a line that morally you just can't do, you'll say no. But sometimes you have to find a compromise where you're meeting in the middle and then you're gradually going to shift it closer to the science-based side if you don't agree with what's happening. You can't necessarily do it cold turkey all at once because it can result in you losing that job and then it actually does less good because the horse will go to a trainer that's not even considering these things. So the way I see it is if I can take a horse who has been trained really harshly or really high pressure and slash the amount of pressure and stress that that horse feels in half, even if I'm not doing the full scope of what I would want to do, I've still bettered that horse's life by working with them. And I think that's the mindset that a lot of people need to have. Like if you're, even if you're not a trainer, if you're working in a lesson barn and you can't necessarily find the exact type of barn that you want to ride at or a barn that models your complete views, you can look at it as a compromise where you improve the horse's lives in the areas that you can while still recognizing that there is need for improvement in other areas that you can't control. It doesn't have to be such a hard line where you're only ever associating with people who completely model your full views because that's not always realistic. And also in order to reach the people who need to be reached, we do have to find that kind of compromise in the middle. Um, And where I stand with this too is like, I'll try to start off slowly and like I'm working with the trainers, I mean the owner of the horse too, and I'm trying to move slowly so I don't alarm them and scare them and put them over threshold in the same way that I do with the horses. Um, But at the same time, if they ask me a question or they're trying to argue with me about something that is like factually incorrect, I will hold my ground and just be like, that's actually not what modern science shows. I can send you some links to some studies if you're interested in reading more. And it's the same type of thing that I do online. Like if people are going to refute things that I'm saying that are well backed by science, 
I don't owe it to them to feed that delusion if there's nothing on their side to make it valid. I usually ask them for, like, like scholarly articles that support their points so that I can read and learn more, and I genuinely mean that because if there's something that conflicts with my current view and it has merit to the research of it, I want to read it. But generally speaking, these people never have research on their side and they feel very, very threatened by people who are willing to stand their ground and be against the status quo and be firm in their stance even as someone tries to, like, argue with them using anecdotes. And I find that's where people get the most frustrated and they'll feel trapped because what they're looking for is reassurance from others where they'll be like, oh, well, my horse is different. He loves his stall. But if someone doesn't agree with them because it doesn't hold up in study, then they feel insecure and they start arguing because what they're really looking for is other people's validation of the care of their horse which makes it clear that there is insecurity in that care already because otherwise they wouldn't feel the need to argue with these people, especially when they have absolutely no science on their side and the person sharing information isn't spreading misinformation. So I think that attitude is something that people need to be mindful of because those types of people, when they're really committed to not learning and growing and when they view information that threatens what they think they know as an attack, they can be very hard to reach and you can literally prove your point beyond a shadow of a doubt and if they're not ready to hear it, they're still going to argue with you. So this is why it's important to be comfortable enough in your views and what you can provide for your horse that you're not reliant on the validation from other people in order to feel good about about it. And this also applies in situations where you can recognize, hey, my horse goes in his stall 8 to 10 hours a day, but the rest of the time he's in a paddock. Ideally, I might want him out 24-7, but I bored and that is not possible in my area right now. You can look at it and go, in theory, it would be better to have my horse out full-time on a track system with a diverse herd of all sorts of different ages and genders and with enough resources and land to do that and let them really explore and be a horse naturally. In a perfect world, that'd be great, but I am doing my best with the resources I have. My horse isn't showing any clear, extensive signs of stress and seems overall pretty happy so I can feel comfortable in what I am providing for my horse. And I think that's what more people need to do because when I share studies on, like, stalling and, like, behavioral issues in horses, it's not an attack on people who don't think, do things the exact same way as me because even with what I'm doing with my horses, there's areas for improvement always and there's limitations that I have always had so far because I've either boarded or I've rented and I haven't owned the land. So I haven't really truly been able to make their living situation my own because I've been limited due to not owning the land and also like financially for how much money you want to put into developing someone else's land. So it's about recognizing where there might be shortcomings in care, doing what you can to mitigate those while still appreciating what you're doing to better your horse's lives overall and feeling comfortable in that. But lots of people can't do that and they're the ones who will always try to move the goal goalposts and prove you wrong. They're the very types of people who go out of their way to try to, like, antagonize and ridicule clicker trainers or positive reinforcement trainers or science-based trainers, and they typically love to do, like, low-blow digs, like, oh, well, like, let's see you compete at the upper levels, and, like, it's easy for you to say when you've never produced an upper-level upper horse or worked with horses of this value, they operate on personal attacks, always. They never really attack the point being made because they don't have any information on their side to do it. So they're reliant on trying to make you feel small by saying mean things that are with the intent of trying to make you feel stupid and elevate themselves to the point where they're more superior to you. And people like that, when they've already made up their mind that they don't want to believe what you have to say, no matter what you do, they're always going to move the goalpost until you're ready. Like, I have watched the same people do this for years now, and it is a truly fascinating display of psychology. For example, recently, I posted a video of Pistachio, my auction rescue pony, 
uh, his second ride ever, first ride in five months, and shared the fact that he'd been sitting in a field mostly doing nothing, that I'd gotten on him a couple times in the field, tackless, and just gotten on him and scratched him and sat on his back. But other than that, he hadn't had more rides, and I took him for a hack the second ride bareback in a halter, and he was great. So me using that to talk about how positive reinforcement makes behaviors stick for longer and makes less stress associated with the behaviors you teach so that you can do that with your horse, it made other people feel inadequate. And again, that is not my problem. If they feel inadequate, it's 100% on them. But since they feel insecure, they have to make it my problem by discrediting me because I have to be wrong in order for them to feel right and comfortable in what they're doing and their shortcomings. So what people did is they were like, oh, well, clearly he was broke when you when you bought him. Like, oh, that's a horse who's already broke. All while having absolutely no idea on how long I had owned this pony for, what he was like when I got him, what I've worked on him groundwork-wise so far, and so on. They just immediately decided, oh no, he has to be broke because he's behaving too well because they've not been able to produce that type of result in any other horse that they've worked with, or the people who are their role models have also been unable to produce that same result. So what they have to do is they have to discredit me in order to feel like they are right. They've got to be like, oh no, she's lying, that horse is broke. And with me in specific, I find it particularly funny because I share so much of my horse's progress online that with most horses that have gone through my program, you can find out the starting footage on my YouTube or my Instagram, my TikTok, my Facebook. You can find it somewhere. And Pistachio, when I got him, he literally hated people. Like, he wanted nothing to do with us. He didn't want us touching him. If you tried to touch him, he'd try to bite you. He wasn't halter broke. He showed absolutely no indication of knowing any skills that would have been taught to a horse who was broke before. And in addition to that, he was said to be four and a half when I got him, but I think he was more like three and a half because he's just starting to lose the caps that they would lose at four and a half right now. So he's about four and a half right now, and I got him almost a year ago now. So he would have been three and a half, and for a three and a half year old to have been broke and regressed to the point where they are terrified of people and show no sign of knowing anything, I think that's a lot more unlikely than me getting a pony who existed on hundreds of acres of land not being handled, because that's what a lot of the ponies that end up at these auctions do. It's what happened with Simon as well. Um... More believable to assume that my pony's feral based off of the months-long witnessing of his behaviors that I've had, but people decide to come to their own conclusions without ever asking any questions to find out how long I've had him, what I've done with him, and, like, what the process was because they are so uncomfortable by the work that I've done with him conflicting what they know of horses. And... It's sad because if these people had just stopped to ask and they were like, I've never seen a horse perform this well after time off. What is it that you've done with him? Like, what do you think are the contributing factors? Do you think it's just his personality? Then I could answer it and say, it's the fact that he's managed out on eight acres with other horses in herd turnout where he can self-exercise and gets lots of enrichment, coupled with how I have trained him and handled him since I got him. And if he was stalled or in a small paddock, I can almost guarantee you I wouldn't have been able to just get on and bear back in a halter like that after so much time off because he would have so much pent-up energy that he would react. So the management does play a crucial, crucial role to this, but how his behaviors stuck are more consistent with how I went about teaching them rather than the fact that he's just like a really well-minded good pony and he is brave and he is very outgoing now but he was not those things when I got him so what people need to realize is that if I had chosen to handle him in a way that was inherently scary and high stress and that he didn't like his association with me and my training and what I do with him would be entirely different than it is right now 
the aspects of his personality that are so great have been molded to be that way largely because he's been allowed to show his personality. He's been encouraged to engage. He's been rewarded for doing the right thing. And it's given him a lot more incentive to want to participate in things with me because of that. So, his outgoing personality, I view as, yes, some horses are more naturally outgoing, but also you can facilitate that outgoingness through how you handle them. Uh, another example would be Banksy. Like, Banksy is super outgoing and loves interacting with people and is very, very interested in what everyone's doing. But if he'd been trained in a way that was highly punishing and high pressure and high stress from the time he was born, he'd be a lot more likely to avoid people because his associations with them wouldn't be as positive. So he wouldn't be as likely to seek them out in all of the occasions that he does. The reason why he does that is because historically, with his interactions with people, he's stood a very good chance of getting rewarded for the right things and a very small chance of getting punished for the wrong things. So what this means is, since he doesn't have a long-standing history of being punished for undesirable behaviors, it doesn't make making mistakes inherently risky for him. So he's more likely to offer all sorts of different behaviors because the odds of him getting rewarded for the right behavior are much higher than being punished for the wrong behavior because he's not been trained with extensive use of punishment or positive punishment where you're like hitting them or applying an unpleasant stimulus to discourage a behavior. And this is the key difference between horses who are trained with rewards-based methods versus negative reinforcement. It's the crucial difference in the fact that when you are only training with pressure and release and no reward, by default, the reinforcer has to be aversive. Otherwise, it will not be reinforcing when you remove it. If you were reinforcing your horse with something that they wanted and removing it to try to make the behavior more likely to reoccur, it would actually be punishing because removing of something the horse wants to seek means you're removing a resource that they would like to have around them. So in order for the removal of it to be reinforcing, it needs to be something that the horse wants to move away from, that the horse would prefer not to have around. And it doesn't need to escalate to instances of excessively high levels of stress. So this isn't a statement against any use of pressure and release. It's just a realistic acknowledgement of how it is actually applied to the horse and how it enacts on the brain. If there is no reward for the right answer, the horse is really only getting relief from something that they prefer to move away from, which is a lot less incentivizing than something that they would like to have, like a treat or some type of reward. So they're a lot less likely to want to be active participants in the same way as horses who have been trained using rewards-based methods. And it's not a coincidence because honestly, at this point, like I've had so many horses who have come through my program and been so shut down and really, really to themselves and haven't liked people in the beginning that have later become in-your-pocket golden retriever-style horses. And it cannot just be me lucking out at this point. Like it's a very clear correlation between their different types of personalities and like how it has brought out certain behaviors. Um, and again, this is something that is also supported in study and holds up in research. So it's not really something that's up for debate, but people will seek to discredit people like me and even like the studies of equine scientists and like people who've gotten a whole ass PhD to prove that they know what they're talking about. Because it conflicts with what they feel internally. And the frustrating thing is that no matter how hard you try to re-educate these people, if they do not want to be educated and they don't want to admit that they know less than they thought they did, you will not get through to them. The goalpost will always move. Like, for example, if I were to send the people discrediting me footage of Pistachio when I first got him, very clearly being feral, they probably would either stop replying or they would be like, oh, well, he was probably broke before and then had a traumatic experience that miraculously wore off and made him really well broke and not tra traumatized from riding. And they would make up a new excuse for why they are right and I can't be. 
because they don't care about the truth, these types of people. They don't want any background or history of the horses they're trying to speak on. They just want their view of things to be the righteous one and the correct one. And the goalpost will always move when they are not ready to come to terms with the fact they might not know as much as they thought they did, that their training toolbox might be a lot more limited than they thought they did. And that denial and that resistance can feel comforting in the beginning, and that's why so many people try to lay into it. But it ends up prolonging your discomfort over the long run because you'll always have these conflicting emotions internally that you can push away and you can try to ignore, but they're always going to be there and you're always going to have discomfort with different forms of training that challenge your beliefs if you're completely put off by them and completely in denial of any validity of them and if you're only seeking to try to find the flaws in the system rather than looking at all of the situations that they work in. So, I guess this is to say, like, if you're dealing with someone like this, like, even if they're, like, your trainer or something, for example, sometimes it's not worth the argument. Like, you can say your piece, but if it's clear that they're not ready to hear you out, it's not really worth pushing it because you can't argue with someone. Like, these are the types of people that you could look at and you could say the sky is blue and they would argue with you that it's green, um, even as you stand under an open blue sky. So, it's frustrating, but it's also, like, like, we need to start viewing it as it's a protective mechanism to protect them from the realities that would be hurtful and uncomfortable for them to deal with initially. And a lot of people go through that stage of denial before they start becoming open-minded to things and actually trying them and actually seeing how they work. And it's unfortunate because now, like, for years, I've seen, like, lots of people being like, oh, well, like, prove that you can teach this with rewards-based methods. Prove that it works. And then when people start posting footage that proves that they can do what they said they can, these same people will be like, oh, well, you probably taught that with pressure and release. Or, oh, the horse is already broke before you got it. Or, oh, that horse is just a really easy horse. Let's see you do with a rank horse. And they discredit what they do anyways, even when they get the proof that they asked for. So... I think that it's important to to try to, like, like, even for people who are more receptive, when you're starting to get, like, reactionary and uncomfortable to something, it's important sometimes to stop and ask yourself what the underlying motivation for that might be. Because for myself in the beginning, when I started to feel really uncomfortable about how many people were sharing rewards-based methods and saying things about pressure and release that completely conflicted with what I had been taught about it, I was uncomfortable because... There is a part of me that knew there was probably some validity to it, and it was a really scary thing to come to terms with the fact that perhaps I don't know as much as I thought I did. And the idea that I'd have to completely relearn so much was a really scary thought, and it was initially more comfortable and easier to lay into that denial and be insistent that these other people were just wrong and that they're, like, tree-hugging, like, science-y people that don't know what they're talking about and haven't worked with enough horses or are only applying their methods to a very niche market of horses. Um, it's easier to do that and be insistent that you've always done things the right way and that these people are the wrong ones. That's a lot easier than having to come to terms with the fact that you might have been fed years of misinformation and know a lot less than you thought. So, a lot of people choose that, but it's honestly just prolonging how long you're choosing to go down the route of not knowing as much, because it's also not to say, like, reading and researching things doesn't mean you need to agree with what you say. Some things are not yet well-researched enough to have, like, a conclusive claim on the results. So, reading and being open to research and the direction that it's heading in can simply just help you with feeling comfortable in the decisions that you make for your animal and how you make adjustments in this modern horse world in training and care practices to do the best you can by the animals that you work with. And I think that's why research is so important, is it lends you more credibility, it helps remove bias, and it also provides you with information from all sides that you can use to adjust your horse's care and training accordingly with the resources that you have access to. So it's not about being like, oh, I read a study on stalling being a number one co contributor to colic, so now I need to up and move my entire life into another state, country, or whatever, and find my horse a track system immediately, or I'm a bad horse owner. No, it can be something as simple as looking at, okay, my horse has less space than what I would want. 
What can I do to enrich their paddock and stall lifestyle immediately? And what can I do for a future plan to try to make this more viable for them and ensure that they're having more of their needs met and adjusting accordingly? Because being self-aware and being aware of like where research is pointing, it simply makes it easier to problem solve and address things for yourself. It's not necessarily about being super rigid to going to like one extreme to the other. And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with is they view it as like very extremist. Like when people promote positive reinforcement, a lot of people view it as like, oh, you can't use any pressure at all, any pressure-based cue. And I used to think that as well, but it's just that you're not teaching those pressure-based cues with the reinforcement being the relief from pressure. You can teach them in a lot of different ways and the cues can look identical, but they've been taught differently and they're categorized differently in the brain because of how they've been taught. They've not been taught with relief of an aversive. They've been taught with a rewards-based system. And this can make a horse more likely to be responsive and retain information better. And we've also learned, too, that in shorter training sessions, horses tend to retain more information. There's still this very ingrained mindset that we need to be working with our horses for, like, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour or more to get improvement with them. And that's not the case. Like, we find that they learn better and information sticks better when they're doing shorter sessions with breaks between. And that mindset being applied in the industry of training would completely revolutionize and change how we see training going on by shortening sessions. And honestly, it would probably make a lot of people less stressed, a lot of trainers less burnt out, but people won't do it because they feel like they're not getting their money's worth in those types of settings, even though their horse will retain more of the information in shorter settings. And that's another problem that as a trainer I've run into because I've really shortened how long the sessions I'll do with horses are because it's generally not productive, especially with really young horses, to try to fulfill a full one-hour quota, especially if they've already met all of the markers that you've set for them and are doing great and you could finish on a good note. Trying to fulfill a time quota that really only benefits the people for making them feel like they did more than they did doesn't always help the horse out. So, it can be difficult finding that happy medium where owners feel like they're getting their money's worth from what you're providing their horse while not overfacing horses and doing things that are not going to create as lasting of behavioral change because things are so traditional, tradition-based and there's such a lack of desire for growth in the community that it can be really hard to kind of have people catch on with that because until they actually see how well it works with their own eyes, which again can be really hard to get them to see if they're committed to not seeing it and not wanting to believe it. So we need to kind of just slowly push for that change by sharing what we do with our animals and sharing modern information um, and research and just kind of putting out the idea that, like, it is not anything to be ashamed of to make mistakes. Like, everyone makes mistakes in training. Even when you're trying to do low-stress, fear-free training, you can make mistakes that cause your horse to have a reaction. That's a reality of working with flight animals, but it's about identifying that it is a mistake, and I think that's the clear distinction between a lot of science-based trainers and a lot of traditional trainers. A traditional trainer will ride a horse around as it's freaking out and ride through the bronking fits as it rears and tries to throw them. And they view that as a sense of pride to be able to stay on and ride through all of that and push the horse through it until the horse is exhausted and just stops reacting. Whereas a science-based trainer, if the horse starts going off and is extremely over threshold, is a lot more likely to take the training back to something less stressful, work on the basics, try to identify the underlying cause of those stress behaviors so that the horse no longer feels the emotions that are necessitating that behavioral response. So there's a lot more accountability in science-based training because it's looking at as the horse struggling rather than the horse doing bad things that they need to be ridden through so that they immediately stop those behaviors. The goal is about the foundation and making it so that the horse doesn't feel the need to engage in flight behaviors because we know they're stressed when they do that, rather than, okay, let's, how can I ride through this behavior right now and 
get the horse so exhausted that the owner thinks that I've made a big difference. Even if the next time you get on the horse, they're still very stressed and you're still having to time and time again work through that stress that may never fully leave them, even if they don't escalate it to such a point. It's never actually dealing with the cause of the stress. It's working them through it. And again, this isn't always a bad thing. Like if I didn't have access to food and I was on a horse who was really overstimulated by the environment they were in, I'd probably walk them or trot them around for a while um, to give them an outlet for that excitable energy. But if they were like rearing, bronking and flipping over on me, I wouldn't be on them. I would be doing groundwork and trying to get them calm on the ground before I considered getting on them. And that's something different that I do now versus what I would have done before because I used to take a lot of pride in my ability to ride through things and get get through the issue rather than actually handling what is causing the issue. And by addressing the underlying cause of those flight behaviors, that's how you can give your horse time off like with what happened with pistachio and get on them and be able to pretty much pick up from where you started off from because you've actually addressed the underlying causes of stress. You're not just trying to ride through them and ignore them and just not have the horse engage in stress behaviors that make their stress very outwardly obvious. And that's the clear difference is if I went about it when he was stressed and I just got on him anyways and saddled him all at once, didn't make it rewarding and just added more and more pressure until he did what I what I wanted and rode him through it, if I gave him five months off and then tried to get on him again, he would have inherent stress associated with being tacked and having me on his back because of how I went about it. And the behavior wouldn't stick as well because that underlying motivation for any flight behaviors, the stress, isn't being properly addressed. So I think that's kind of how we need to break it down and look at it is like, We should always be looking to create a better horse than what we started with and generally speaking, trying to accomplish things as quickly as possible isn't how you get that and if it were, we wouldn't see the amount of wastage that we see currently with horses. Like the amount of horses with behavioral issues that we see going through auctions or being sold cheap um, because they have like a rearing or bucking issue or something going on with them that is hard to resolve or horses who quote unquote need harsh bits because they bolt and they can't be stopped without one um, or any number of harsh equipment that is justified. If the approach of a lot of traditional practices was working as well as people claim it does, we wouldn't see those behaviors to the same extent. Um, And for me, what's been the most eye-opening in, like, my journey developing and altering how I handle horses is how much less I've put myself in dangerous situations. Like, I'm not getting thrown around like a rag doll to the same degree I did when I was just taught to ride through things and wasn't taught to, like, look at the underlying motivation for behaviors. My horses are way calmer. They're safer to deal with. Even after time off, they're less difficult to deal with. They're just a lot less stressed. And it's made a lot of other things easier. Even if the initial foundation of getting that might not be as fast as impressive as throwing a saddle on a horse and getting on them within the same day or doing a 30-day start where you have the going walk trot canter and doing a ton of stuff by the end of that 30 days when you're probably only riding them for 20 rides within that 30 days. Um, Speed is often viewed with more respect than quality. And I think that is one of the biggest issues in the horse world is people are in such a rush to prove that they are worthy of respect in the horse world and that they know what they're doing and that they're a good trainer. And in the pursuit of doing that, we forget what got us into this sport, which is the love of the horses. And if we care about them, we should really care about their emotional state during training And again, like stress in training and learning is not avoidable completely, but we should be doing what we can to lessen the stress wherever we can. And currently, a lot of horse stress is kind of glorified and laughed at um, and isn't properly viewed as the stress that it is. We are very likely as a community to kind of mock and laugh off horses who are showing like high instances of stress and flight behaviors. And honestly, like, yeah, some of that stuff, like when they're when you're having riding fails, it can be fun to watch and all that jazz. But like we also still need to consider like how the horse might have been feeling in those moments. And you can still enjoy like, oh, look at how well I rode through this mishap while recognizing the fact that that came from a place of stress and looking at how you can address it. Because once the situation has already happened, you can't do anything to make it different in that moment necessarily, but how you respond to it 
is what will set you apart from other riders. So, we can still enjoy everything that we have been with horses, but there needs to be a huge perspective change so that we don't forget what's important, which is, like, equine well-being. And honestly, like, just for, as it stands, like, full stop, like, we can't rely on the personal opinions of trainers and horse people if we want to keep equine welfare at the forefront of our thoughts. Because personal opinions always have bias. We always seek to protect our egos, and we try to avoid discomfort. So, even people who are really woke when it comes to training and are really trying to hold themselves accountable, if they're not constantly trying to limit bias in the way that scholarly studies and researchers do, they're likely to meet bias at some point. So, the best way to hold ourselves accountable is by deferring to science and having access to the amount of studies that we do, because now there's thousands and thousands of studies on horses for all sorts of different things, from management to behavior to training, um, that paint a very good picture of what works and what doesn't, and there's only going to be more. And honestly, like, Positive reinforcement across all species is probably the most researched method of operant conditioning. So, it's very well researched and there's a lot to prove its merit in terms of enacting behavioral change for all types of species, including horses. So, people's discomfort of it needs to be viewed as separate from the validity of it. Like, you don't have to want to use rewards-based training to know that it works, but, like, your choice not to use it should not come with discrediting it when that doesn't hold up in study. Like, a lot of people's main concerns with positive reinforcement in terms of horses becoming aggressive, pushy around food, or unable to learn the same things, they don't hold up in practice. Like, studies show that these horses are able to learn and retain information better, and that dealing with food aggression using positive reinforcement does work. So, what we need to do is if you find yourself doing this, or if you see a friend doing this, it's time that people start to become a little bit more self-aware and be honest about where that's coming from. Because if you just like using your method better and you prefer traditional training, whatever, but, like, constantly going to, like, discredit and, like, seek out positive reinforcement trainers who do not comment on any of your stuff and are just minding their own business, sharing on their own pages, to discredit how they train and make fun of them, or post low-blow insults or claim that they're lying about the progress of their horses, that is a personal issue. It has nothing to do with the positive reinforcement trainer. It is a personal insecurity that is now being highlighted and showcased for the entire internet to see, because there is no reason why you should be motivated to just shit all over people who are using arguably the most credible and effective method of training across species, including humans, there's no reason to do that if you're comfortable with what you do. Full stop. Because the concerns in terms of safety for positive reinforcement are actually more applicable to a lot of traditional horsemanship because the stress levels and the risk of bad behavior that can hurt people is higher with negative reinforcement and punishment-based training than it is with positive reinforcement. So, what people use to discredit positive reinforcement is largely a fallacy that is based off of, like, stereotypes and preconceived notions where people are looking for confirmation bias, and they'll pick on any little piece of information that they can that supports what they want to believe and then run with it. And that little piece of information can literally just be a trainer telling them, oh yeah, you can't hand feed horses or they'll get aggressive. And then they just take it and run with it, even though there's studies on thousands of horses with all types of trainers showing how it works, in addition to other animals that are much more likely to be food aggressive towards people in training that are still able to use positive reinforcement. So, I think that, like, that's a huge part of growth as a trainer and, like, a horse person is being able to be comfortable enough in your views that you're not just blindly attacking other methods of training when there's no merit to be attacking them. Like, the criticisms that I make about modern management practices and the issues that I have with traditional training they are held up by study. It's not just my opinion. I'm not just going around to be a dick and insult something that is well supported by evidence. I'm sharing my thoughts that are well supported by evidence and serve to expose 
areas where we can improve the horse world. And here's the thing, if we all want to improve as riders and we don't think we're perfect and infallible, which we shouldn't if we're constantly learning and growing, then we should be open to the fact that there might be a better way of doing things than what we're currently doing. Because just being closed off to everything means that you think you are God's gifts to horses and that there's no better way of doing anything. So, that's kind of where I stand. Like, if people want to argue with me on, like, my training practice or, like, criticize it or whatever, that's fine. But I would like to see them have the same amount of credibility behind their arguments as what I've had to have for mine. Otherwise, it is not worth my time. Someone who is going to use personal anecdotes to argue against sample sizes of hundreds of thousands of horses at this point, not worth my time because, like, that is literally, like, walking up to a brain surgeon and being like, hey, like, I played operation once, so I think I can operate on this person's brain aneurysm. Step out of the way, dude. Let me in. No one would do that because we can realize like when our bodies are at stake or when we're in danger and we need care, we can realize that like a healthcare professional with the knowledge to provide life-saving care is probably the person we want to go to. We're not going to go to our friend Mark down the street to get brain surgery or to get like, I don't know, stomach surgery or something where they're cutting you open. Or if you need like a C-section, you're not just going to go to your friend Jane and be like, hey, Jane, I brought like a saw. Can you come cut me open and pull my baby out? No, you'll go to a professional who is educated in the field because you know that they've put the work in to know the things that they do. And the same applies to behavior modification and studies because people who are literally dedicating their lives to trying to research information have a lot more to hold themselves accountable than the average horse trainer or barn owner. There aren't any industry standards for horse training anyone can train. Like, I could literally sign, I could literally get Jesse a cowboy hat and some jeans and a lasso and he could start saying he's a trainer and offering publicly training, public training sessions, even though he knows nothing about horses, really. Jesse's my boyfriend, for people who don't know. There's nothing, there's nothing that would stop him from doing that. Nothing legally, he wouldn't need to do anything other than just be like, hey, I'm training now. So, with that in mind, like, we really need to put, stop putting so much merit in the hands of people who just ride horses or just have owned a barn for many years. Because, honestly, a lot of those things you can acquire simply through privilege. If you have enough money to buy a barn and manage it, you can get one. If you have enough money to get really high upper-level horses that can win for you, you can end up competing at the upper levels. Again, this isn't to say that you don't also need talent, but you can get yourself into a lot of high places if you have enough money. What you can't do is get thousands of studies all leaning one direction with similar things across all species, even when you have a lot of money. Like, paying to have those results and then bury any results that conflict with them, less likely, especially when they're coming from all different entities, these studies. So, In terms of eliminating bias and, like, who we should trust, it's pretty clear which side is the safest to go with because there is very little to gain for all of these different organizations and researchers and people that are sharing the horse studies and, like, committed to learning more about horses other than the pursuit of more knowledge. Like, they're not being paid for by people who are supporting, like, the FEI and, like, competitive show industries, or at least most of them aren't. So, there isn't really much in the way to support that, especially when a lot of these studies conflict with popular industry opinion where the most money would be. So, I don't know. That's where I stand with that. Like, if we want to eliminate bias, we need to stop putting so much trust in the hands of just the average horse person or horse trainer. And this, like, includes myself. Like, if I was just saying things that weren't supported by any science and I couldn't back my claims with anything other than my personal opinion... I wouldn't deserve the right to be held with more credibility over scientific study and the research of professionals in that field. I wouldn't. The only reason why I use, like, why I make some of the claims I do is because I'm using the expertise of people who know more than me to support those claims and that the research is leaning in the direction that I hold my opinion in. 
And again, like, that's why I still say, like, when people want to argue with stuff that I post, like, that's fine and dandy, but I don't like it when people argue with, like, scientific study using, well, my horse likes his stall, because that is just solely based off of personal perception. Or, well, my horse isn't stressed at all. Again, personal perception. And there's studies done on equestrians that show us that the vast majority of horse people are not effective at reading subtle signs of stress in horses, and a lot of people view stress behaviors as happy ones. So, with that in mind, we can't use our personal opinion as, like, the sole justification for a lot of things. Um, because we already know how biased it is, and it's something that has actually been studied and held up in practice. So, when someone's sharing an opinion that is supported by research, it should be met with a conflicting opinion that is also supported by research. No one owes it to you to take your personal opinion seriously. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of basically where I stand, and, like, when we're sharing information, like, there's certain people that you're never gonna be able to change their minds. They've committed to misunderstanding you, um, and that's fine, but a lot of people are reachable, so it's kind of just about being patient and waiting for those people and looking for the right target audience and also learning how to ask, like, the right types of questions or how to open the dialogue to increase people's curiosity. And a lot of times it's through, like, a watching and learning approach. Like, people actually being able to physically see that something works the way you set, say it does, they're more likely to change their views. So, that's why, like, sharing the information and talking about the process of, like, how this training works versus a more traditional approach, I think is so important because people need to understand whether or not you use rewards-based training or pressure and release, you need to understand how it fundamentally acts on the horse's brain and how they understand it. It doesn't matter what our understanding of it is. It matters how the learner perceives it, and that's something that all of us need to get better at doing and holding ourselves accountable, is being aware of how methods we use or equipment we use are actually physically acting on the horse rather than solely looking at it through the lens of, oh, when I do this or when I use this piece of equipment, my horse does what I want him to do. Because the horse being compliant isn't necessarily correlated with ethicality or good welfare. So, in order to ensure that our horses are being heard and considered and well cared for, we need to consider how things would feel through their lens. And a lot of equipment that is justified wouldn't be justifiable if we looked at it simply through how the mechanics act on the horse. Because the horse's response to that equipment and them being easier for us to ride or work with doesn't make it so that the equipment is comfortable for them or that the method is something that they enjoy. It just means that it makes them compliant. And that is why scientific research on the equine brain and how they learn and how they think and how effective methods are is so important because people can claim a method is effective until they're blue in the face, especially when they're not educated in learning theory and behavioral science because then they're going to not notice all of these follow-up behaviors that might seem unrelated from their methods because they're occurring in slightly different contexts, but that are always there. And a lot of horses who are trained with high levels of punishment will continue to show different types of unwanted behaviors all the way out where they're needing to be consistently punished for things and consistently reminded for things in order to have the not doing it stick. So it doesn't actually cause any lasting change. It just causes them to adopt a new behavior and then these new behaviors are perpetually arising. And I can say this both due to where studies point but also through my personal experience of it, because for all of the years that I was using traditional pace methods and was taught to punish horses, it never really fully addressed what we were trying to stop them from doing. Like, it always, we always had to keep punishing. The behaviors were never fully remedied, and even if they stopped doing a certain behavior for a time, a different one would arise that would have to be punished. Like, it never really resulted in a fully solved thing, and a lot of the horses showed what I now know to be clear signs of stress following that. So, that's why, like, actually testing the efficacy and making sure that things work the way we think that they do in double-blind studies where people don't necessarily know what is being quantified and what is being looked at in the study, because then there is no bias. People don't even know what is being studied, and the results can't be contaminated by the placebo effect or by people expecting a certain outcome, and that is how people can be held accountable. And it also ensures that, like, what we are doing is actually what is happening. 
So that's why study is so important because realistically, like just practically applying methods to horses um, in the field and like as a trainer, we can say whatever we want, but we don't have the technology to do like brain scans or test blood or saliva cortisol levels to actually like quantify stress and see how horses think and react to things. We don't have that. At best, we are guessing and studies allow us to do less guessing. And I think that's why they're so important. But anyways, that's my piece for the day in talking about people who reject information and what some of the motivations behind that might be and also just the general consensus about like the horse world and the industry problem in terms of like the lack of growth. So I hope people enjoyed that. Um, I'm going to be trying to post more podcasts soon. I have a lot of stuff on the go. There's going to be some really exciting things happening soon. I have some big releases coming up for something that is unrelated to clothes uh, or horse tack um, that I'm really excited about. It's something that I've been working on for a while. Uh, it is writing related. I'll give you a hintity hint. So within the next three or four weeks, I will be sharing more about that and I'm really excited and I hope people are also excited to kind of check that out when the time comes. Um, so yeah, anyways, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my new product line. We have lots of bridles available and we still have a lot of like our summer base layers and whatnot. They're thick enough to ride through the fall as well. Um, but they are selling out and we're going to decide which colors we're going to restock once they're sold out. So if you like what you see now, I highly recommend shopping now because there's a chance that it might not come back if it wasn't selling as well. Uh, cause that's kind of how we're doing our runs. Also, the sizes are always going to be adapted and changed, especially to like to improve and make sure they're more true to size. So if you found that your size is not available currently, please bear with me. We're going to make it available. I promise you that. And it's just a learning curve to kind of test it with all different types of clothing and really get the size range that we're looking for. Um, but we're still trying to in improve the inclusivity of the product line. And right now we have sizes up to three and four XL in most um, areas. And, and most areas of like clothing and whatnot. So yeah, you can check that out at milestoneequestrian.ca, milestoneequestrian.ca on the shop milestone page. And if you're interested in subscribing to my Patreon or supporting any of that, you can do so at patreon.com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s. Also, don't forget to check out the Mustang vlogs on my YouTube channel and the other videos there. I really appreciate it when people like, share, comment on my YouTube videos or the podcast or any of that. It really helps. Um, all of that stuff just helps continue pushing my content to more people, which makes it easier to do because a lot of time is put into like producing the content for free and whether or not that comes back through advertising or patrons or so on. Um, it can vary. So yeah, it, it can be, it can be a difficult industry to be in, especially like I said, with not working the last week. I've lost a lot of work the last month and I'm only surviving because I have more than one revenue stream, but it's still hard. So yeah. Anyways, thank you for listening again. And yeah, this is the Making Milestones podcast. Um, feel free to make any suggestions for podcast episodes you'd like to see in the future and we will continue pushing these out and making them. So thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out my other socials and thanks for all of your support.